What exactly do highly successful, purpose-driven CEOs and entrepreneurs actually do? The CEO role is one of the most mysterious positions in business, and a purpose-driven CEO is a different breed entirely. I know because I coach purpose-driven CEOs. My job gives me a unique behind-the-scenes vantage point into their world. For years, I've wished there was a way I could share the stories I hear, the risky calls, the big wins, and the big, big courage of these unique leaders because they have so much to offer anyone who's leading a business or anyone who wants to lead a purpose-driven life. This is the inspiration for the Good Company Podcast. If you want to be more productive, attract the best people, and achieve more positive impact, stay with us. I'm Barbara Shannon, your host, and you are in good company. My guest today on the Good Company podcast is Min Tsai, CEO and founder at Hodo Foods. In 2004, after a decade in finance and management consulting, Min founded Hodo to disrupt the U.S. commodity tofu space, launching with organic premium tofu products, innovative flavors and textures, and consistently clear and clean marketing. Min guided Hodo to become what is now the go-to tofu company in the U.S., these days, Min is busy moving the Hodo brand forward to the larger plant protein space. Min, welcome to the Good Company Podcast. Thank you, Barbara. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. And I have to tell you that in the last couple of days in my preparation for our conversation, I've been doing a little research on you. And I came upon your talk at Google, where you were doing a demo and uh, talking about tofu and the making of it, as well as the story of Hodo. And I was so taken with watching you working with the food and the preparation. It was a little bit like, you know, if someone tells you about their kid and you get it, that they really love their kid and maybe you've seen pictures of their children on their desk, but then you actually see them with the child present and in front of the child, they're talking to you or talking about that child, you really get a sense of the relationship. And that's really how I felt watching you making tofu on camera and talking about the process. And yeah, I wanted to just let you know that and see if you have anything to say about that. What's your relationship <laughs> to the product these days? You, you know, what's funny is I actually saw that video too, because somehow some of my college friends got a hold of it about three months ago, and they forwarded it to me. And, you know, A, I was much better looking because that was a few years back. <laughs> and B, what I found interesting about that talk too is a lot of what I said then and the passion then still resonates with me today. I really thought, wow, you know, I can show that today and, and it wouldn't, it, we wouldn't change too much. That's great. And, uh, you know, I was hoping and guessing that that was the answer because we're going to talk today a little bit about where you're taking Hodo. And so I'm interested to hear how that passion for the product dri is driving forward the direction of the company. So we'll, we'll talk more about that. But before we get too much into the company and tofu and the new products, I really would love to talk a little bit about the Min story. And you and I met 
two years ago or a little more than two years ago. And I think one of the first things you told me, or one of the first things we talked about was that story. You're Vietnamese. Tell us again, when did you come to the U.S.? What were your early years like actually in Vietnam and in San Francisco? And how does that story play into and be relevant to Hodo today? Okay. Yes, I grew up in Vietnam, South Vietnam, and uh, my family left Vietnam as refugees or asylum seekers in 1981 after the war. One of the reasons we left was because we were being persecuted, both as intellectuals as well as being ethnic Chinese. So I can identify with refugees and asylum seekers globally. Now, I can identify with them even more today because I'm much older and I'm a parent. But back then, when my parents made the decision to leave the country and whatnot, I was merely a teenager. And I looked at our situation of departuring very differently. The whole process of leaving Vietnam, staying in a refugee camp in Malaysia, and coming to the U.S. was quite an adventure for me. It was really a few years of being this kid that really had no guidance back in Vietnam because I was not attending school. I didn't really have my parents to look after me because they were busy making ends meet, taking care of my little sister, and then living on a refugee island in Malaysia. It was quite an adventure. And all of that really ended when I came to the United States because that's when the reality of life of having to make it on your own really came to bear. So there was sort of like a, a grown-up moment where my parents really were on welfare and they were trying to figure out what to do. They didn't speak English. I didn't speak English. I had to learn English. I was frustrated that I had to learn a new language, even though I had spoke, I know how to speak a variety of Chinese and or a few dialects of Chinese and I speak Vietnamese. So there was a lot of frustration. It was also a lot of sadness to finally see my parents no longer the intellectual and, and the successful folks that they were in Vietnam. And that reality was super challenging when we first came to the U.S. But fortunately, I also was able to, to rely on the guidance and the kindness of a few mentors. And in a few short years, I was able, through their guidance, to have access to the educational system in the Bay Area and how to navigate all of that. And it was through their guidance I was able to become sort of a, a good student, going to a good school and having exposure to, to the various supportive programs that allow me to see America in a different light. And, and I know this is a super long answer, but, but I wanted to sort of paint a picture of the opportunities provided for my family at the time as, as immigrants. Because I, I see that's relevant in, in what I do today in our business at Hodo as well. Yeah, you bet. And uh, I think I remember you talking about, in one of our previous conversations, straddling, the experience of straddling as a teenager between, I think you were in a fairly elite school and had friends that were American and well-off and living in nice neighborhoods in San Francisco and straddling between that and your home life. Yeah, I was very fortunate that during high school I went to, um, I was uh, given a scholarship to attend an independent high school in San Francisco, 
one of the elite schools in San Francisco. And it was tremendous academic exposure. But the lessons I learned there was really not about academics, but much more about class, about race, about wealth. And and it was eye-opening to be exposed to that. So how does that play into your leadership at Hodo now? Well, I, I think to be able to understand sort of relativity where I stand, where the folks that work at Hodo stand, as far as class and race, it's, it's very relevant to how I manage our company. Say more about that. Well, I mean, for me, you know, Hodo has roughly about 170 employees today. About 80% of them are immigrants. They were not born here, and they're exceptionally reliable as a workforce. They're older. Some of them are very similar to my parents when they first came here. Some of them are very similar to me, you know, 30, 40 years ago um, as early 20-something. So for me, I see myself in them, not just because they're Asians, but also because they're Latinos coming through very similar experience as immigrants in this country. That's great. We'll get into a little bit more of the culture of Soto and how you manage there in a little bit. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about plant-based diets. And I want to read you something that I found the other day. So my, my eating is changing because of, frankly, because of you and Miyoko Shinner. Miyoko, for anyone who doesn't know her, is the CEO of another plant-based food company called Miyoko's Kitchen. So I've been learning about plant-based diets. And I'm slowly but surely finding my interest in meat waning in a big way. So then I discovered this article by The Guardian just a few months ago, last May. And I'm going to read you the first few sentences here. It says, avoiding meat and dairy products is the single biggest way to reduce your environmental impact on the planet. I didn't really know that. According to scientists behind the most comprehensive analysis to date of the damage farming does to the planet, the new research shows that without meat and dairy consumption, global farmland use could be reduced by more than 75%, an area equivalent to the size of the U.S., China, European Union, and Australia combined, and we could still feed the world. So this is extraordinary to try to take in. I know that it's widely understood among vegetarian and plant-based eaters, maybe more so in the Bay Area than in some other regions of the U.S. and the world. I wondered if you have a position on that, or what is your view of how Hodo plays into this? Right. No, I think what you read is quite powerful. In fact, I've thought about it quite a bit, simply not just because we are a plant-based food company, but I think I think about it in the context of much greater scale as well, very similar to what that article talks about. At Hodo, I and our company, we we don't necessarily take a very extreme position. And here's why. I think we hear more about it today, about food's impact on the environment than ever before. The consciousness about what's happening in terms of environmental health, it's much greater than ever before. And we're not seeing it necessarily just at the food side, but, you know, on a day-to-day, the climate. For me, I've always known that food has a tremendous impact on the environment. And I don't necessarily think it's just meat. I think agriculturally, 
we grow a lot of food for meat. And that has an impact for sure. I think the whole movement towards genetic modification to feed more people and to reduce the price of produce and such needs to be reviewed. I think what we've forgotten is the whole idea of eating less, eating better, and eating more balanced. I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan, and I know he said some simple things, but I think if you think about it in terms of the history of human consumption, if you do some, some of these things, they're very helpful to our environment and our health. I love Michael Pollan, and his quote that I think you're referring to is when people ask, you know, how should I eat? What do I eat? And it seems so complicated. And I think what he says is simple. Eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then he would add one more thing, which is cook at home. Cook at home. Yeah. So as such, you know, even though we produce plant-based food, using organic soybeans, which is something that has been used in the same format for thousands of years in Asia. We don't want to necessarily ascribe to a pure vegan or vegetarian diet. We ascribe more to a healthy, low consumption, low impact on the environment diet. So I'm not an extremist. You know, I'm not out there perpetuating this dichotomy of either your your meat eater or your plant eater. I think more and more you're going to hear us talk about how you can actually be a more balanced sort of the middle ground eater, the flexitarian instead of, you know, other extremism. Yeah, that's great. So say a little more about the quality of soy at Hodo because it is and as you stated in as we stated in your introduction it was a commodity product for years there's nothing at least in the typical consumer's mind that is unique about a soybean so what is it that you do at hodo to create such a uniquely delicious and healthy form of this food right so having done this for about 15 years I don't look at what we do as mind-blowing. I think of what we do as following sort of a, a mission of making something tastier using as much, if not all, organic ingredients, process it in a very artisan, you know, not highly processed kind of way, and educating consumer and allowing them to acquire it at the lowest price possible. These are principles that should work with any food company that can achieve these four things. For us, it starts out with just looking at the tofu space more than a decade ago. I knew then that tofu in America was very different from tofu that I grew up eating in Asia, which is much more varied and diverse. Um, it's consumed with meat. It's got plenty of different textures and flavors. But tofu in America, when we started our hodo, was this poorly understood meat substitute white block that nobody knows what to do with, and it doesn't taste great. So it was really primed for disruption. It was a product that was highly commoditized. There were only two large companies making it, and the market was not growing. So for me, having grown up eating delicious tofu, I thought, well, why not try to make a better tofu? 
And fortunately, at the time, I had some great role models, people in the Bay Area like Calgary Creamery, Acme Food. These are folks that are literally trying to make a better bread, a better cheese, as close to where they are as possible in the Bay Area. And so I adhere to these models and try to be patient. And here we are 15 years later. People today have much more information. There's a whole revolution about plant-based eating. And we happen to be there at the right time and to play in that space. Yeah. And you said a word that I think is greatly undervalued these days, which is patience, sticking to principles and having the patience to let that play out. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of food businesses don't necessarily have the patient or don't desire to have the patient. And certainly the whole economic of fundraising and, and investment in your business really reduce the chance of a company being patient. You take investment and there's pressure to grow at a certain speed, a certain rate, et cetera. And, and it's, it's a different game than what I believe Steve Sullivan did, what Calgary Creamery did, and what we're doing among other, some of our peers locally. So correct me, is Hodo self-funded? Are you bootstrapped? Are you taking outside investors or have in the past? So Hodo was bootstrapped for the first five years. And then my partner and I, we raised a little bit of money to build our plant in Oakland in 2008. The majority of that money comes from our friends, our family, and some of our farmer's market consumers. So our customers at the farmer's markets are the biggest group of investors in Hodo. What a wonderful, to use the term broadly, or very organic business model. Nice. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about culture. I know that's so important to you. And in your words, you've said culture and values are everything. Our people must be comfortable saying, I don't know. Making tofu is a high-touch job. So tell us more about how these things fit into the culture at Hodo and why it's important. I think the culture starts with me. I stumble into this. I've always been a curious person, someone who's an autodidact, who learns and, and find people to teach me. And so, you know, I learned how to make tofu. I learned how to tinker with tofu. And even building our current production facility, there weren't really anybody in the U.S. at least that could say, I can build a plant for you because I've made tofu before. So it was through a lot of trial and error and having patient friends and family members and workers that we're able to build and grow and become the experienced sort of tofu producer and plant builder that we are today. So I want to remind myself that when I think about the people that we bring in to work at Hodo, many of them, you know, as I pointed out, are immigrants. They've never made tofu, right? So I need to teach them with as much patience as possible. And of course, you know, there are language barriers, there are cultural barriers, and all of these barriers require us to be patient with how we teach. And we believe in promoting within. We believe in allowing people to grow. So we encourage our team at Hodo to basically you know, learn English, become proficient in Excel, become proficient in writing emails so that we can put them in positions where they not only make more money because they have more responsibilities, but ultimately for them to even leave Hodo and become their own entrepreneurs 
and work at other locations and other plants and other companies. So for us, we don't look at an employee or someone at Hodo as just doing their job well. We look at everyone with a trajectory. If they want to grow, we want to support them to grow. And we're committed to them growing at Hodo. But sometimes they grow too fast, faster than our company, and we're committed to helping them get a job that's better pay somewhere else. So it, it's something that we believe in. It's something that we speak about at Hodo. And it's something that we actually, you know, we walk the walk. And I'm, I'm very proud of that, that we invest in our people. And, and that investment is not just what you see on paper, which is all the health benefits and dental and all of that and 401k and, and such, but also in their lives and how they sort of become more integrated and more successful as immigrants in America. Well, you certainly do have a lot to be proud of there, and it's really unique to be able to create that in a business environment. Everyone talks the talk, but not too many people walk it. And I actually have here a quote from one of your workers that I found, Ana Munoz. Ana Munoz? Yes, Ana Munoz. And, uh, yeah. And so she, I understand she emigrated from Mexico as a teenager, and today she's supervising a production shift at Hodo. And to quote her, she says, we're always learning a lot here. I didn't know anything about tofu or yuba. I didn't know anything about food safety or working safely. Now I have all of those skills, including preparation, documentation, following GMP protocols, and recipes to produce various products in batches. So That's awesome. Yeah, you're... <laughs> no, I mean, she's I a star. I thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah. She's a star, and, and she, she's great. So I'm, I'm super proud of folks like Anya and, and all of the folks on our team. And you're right. I think we're very lucky to be able to do that. You know, for, for more than a decade, I don't talk about how we treat our employees because it's one of those things where you want to do it, but you can't really talk about it because I'm always fearful that what if our company is not at a place where we can support employees the way we want to. So we do this for a long time before we, we talk about it, because today, you know, where we are as a company, we're at a point where we're not so scared about whether we're going to be able to make payroll, whether we have to take away benefits and such. So we're much more stable and sustainable as a business, and we want to be able to have the employees reap the benefits of where we are today. And I know it's not easy for a lot of companies, and I appreciate that. I'm not saying that we're unique from the standpoint of special, but I think it's sort of a vision about meritocracy that I, I want to aspire people to do. And sometimes it's, it's not easy to do, especially if you're running a business. No, it's very, very hard to do. I work inside a lot of companies and I really am speaking from authority. There are very few of any size that are able to create the kind of culture that you have at Hodo. Now that you are able to have more confidence and able to talk about it, do you find that this is a recruiting advantage or even a retention advantage? Absolutely. I think, you know, we haven't really talked about it too much. And I think I only started talking about this cultural piece outside of the company in the last few months. But we have exceptional retention uh, in an industry that sees basically 100% plus turnover we only have about roughly 20%. And, and many of that is really related to not so much people that leave, but people that we don't think are good cultural match. So we have to let go. Ana Munoz, funny that you, you, you quoted her, she has a whole family working here. 
you know, and it's great, except when they have a wedding, in which case half of them wanted time, like, you know, half of them want time off. So you're losing half your workforce. Exactly. So, but, but it's wonderful. And, and so we, we don't have a shortage of employer employees. We have a ton of referrals. People do want to come here. And what's also nice is we have a combination of sort of older employees and young employees. And I think that balance, it's, it's super helpful for both sides. And we also have a balance of gender, like, you know, female and male workers. So it, it's pretty neat. I think it's something that we've, we've invested a lot of efforts and time to build. And to see it come to fruition makes me really proud. Was there an inflection point or a defining moment that stands out for you in Hodo's trajectory? Wow. I mean, there are many. It's very easy to look at where we are today. It's a national company with 3,000 plus retail stores and food service and Chipotle and think, you know, we've always been this golden child forever and ever. But that's not the reality. The reality is every business that managed to survive and sustain itself has gone through a lot of trials and, and tribulations. And for us, for sure, like, you know, there was a time when I first started out where I even had doubt that I would continue. Now, I can remember that one of the first one was, I think it was in 2003 or right when we started out, there was one winter where it was just literally rained for three months straight. And I was at the farmer's markets and I was standing there and there were practically no customers coming. And I was like, what am I doing here? But then all it took was one customer, one loyal customer showing up and saying to me, hey, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you didn't just stay home because it rained. And and these are the type of inspirational and passionate voices that kept me going. You know, another example is when we first started out and finished building the plant and invested, you know, a couple of million dollars into it, you know, we had this plant and it was during a recession. It was in 2008. We had eight employees and we were running just one day a week. And even then, we couldn't afford payroll. And so we were going to lay off a couple of the employees. But instead of just making some decision about you're the last one to hire, so, you know, I'm sorry I have to let you go. I gathered the eight people together and I said, here's the situation. Like, here's what I'm thinking. I'm really sorry. And they were like, no, don't do that. Why don't we just all work three days a week? And then when things get better, we work more days. And so it's so powerful to have your employee telling you, like, here, solve it this way. We will all take a hit together. And so these are lessons and times where I I look back, you know, and I think, okay, you know, we made it through these types of trials. We'll be okay. And it helped me become more of a balanced and seasoned and, and calm leader as well today. Wow. Uh, yes, and that's so important. You mentioned being a calm leader. As you know, I coach CEOs of large and small and medium-sized companies, and I have a few of my clients. I love all my clients. I don't work with anybody I don't love. And the younger clients or the less seasoned CEOs, I find that coaching around mindset is very helpful being able to maintain that calm kind of steady state as opposed to operating yourself and your business on a roller coaster of highs and lows. 
So did you ever or do you now do anything to maintain that steady state mindset? Yes, I pay a lot for therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way. <laughs> well, I mean, kidding aside, you know, therapy does help. But I, I try to just do very simple things like exercise, go for a walk, and, and sort of always take a deep breath when a situation comes up. There are plenty of fire drills, but you can look at them as fire drills, or you can look at them as just small little sort of ignitions that aren't necessarily fire. So for me, it's really perspective. Granted, I'm older. Granted, we've been around for a little longer. And it's very easy to react as, as a CEO of a company. Um, and I appreciate how as CEO, sometimes you do need to react. But whenever I catch myself reacting with a, with a stronger, more passionate, fervent, I check myself and I thought, okay, it's good to have that passion, but let's find a way to communicate that in a way that that is more balanced. And it's not easy. I don't succeed. In fact, I don't succeed most of the time. But it's something that I aspire to do better because I think it translates basically to other folks in my company, to the managers and the directors in our company as well, to remind them. But I can't just remind them and not do it myself. That's right. Yeah. That involves saying, like, I'm sorry that I said that. That involves saying, let's not use these words, like defend or like negative words. So it's, it's a constant thing. I have to say it. I have to show it. You know, I, I'm the one that's picking up all the trash that I see on the hallway. I'm the one that mops the toilet when I'm not happy with it. And I don't do it for them to see. But if they see me, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. You, you cannot lead by words. Nobody follows words. They follow behavior. Absolutely true. Uh, looking at Hodo today, we've talked a little bit about what's easier now than in the early days, but what's harder right now? I, I think what we talk about, it's hard. Working with people, inspiring them, you know, gaining their trust. That will always be hard. And it, it takes the most of my time. Actually making the products, making large quantity of it, that's no longer that difficult. But the things that I focus on more today are how do we maintain quality and food safety? How do we make sure our employees are working safely and not get injured? So these are the things that aren't necessarily hard, but they require more vigilance now than prior for me. Because everything else, I have wonderful people to help me manage. So I have to really continue to inspire, to guide directionally the kind of products we make, the markets that we go to, the education that we want to do. So these are the things that I need to, to help our team with and, and just be a resource. I often ask people, not like do this, do that, but like, okay, I see this challenge. How can I help? You know, or like, okay, I see what you're saying. What exactly is the question that you're trying to ask me that I can help with? So get them to clarify, to articulate. These are the things that I find super challenging and I'm working on it every day. Great. I want to ask you a couple of questions on a different line here about competition and your peers. Mm. So how do you think about the competition? Does it influence your decisions? And perhaps in the same vein, who are your peers in the food space 
that you hold in high regard and why? Sure. Well, I'll answer your question in reverse. The people I hold in high regard, some of them I mentioned before, Sue Connolly at Calgary Creamery, Steve Sullivan of Acme Bread. There's a company that recently got sold, Benoit Yogurt, which is a local yogurt company. Benoit's a friend of mine. He was right next to me at the farmer's market. I'm very happy that he managed to sell the company. But these are folks that I really admire as not just as entrepreneurs, as people who guided very successful food businesses. People I don't know that I read about, companies that I read about that I want to meet their founders would be, you know, Ben and Jerry Ice Cream. I really love their story, uh, the Chobani story, the Greek yogurt company. You know, I love his story, being an immigrant and building such an empire. The courage that it would take to really do that are unbelievable and inspirational. So, so those are the people that I look up to and admire. And then as far as competition, we are in a relatively small space, even if you look at plant-based food. So I look at our, the people that are in the space more as peers than as competitor. I think their success brings more attention to the space. And I'm friends with practically most of them, if not all of them. You know, I know the mm-hmm. folks at Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. You know, I know the Upton people that sells jackfruit, the jackfruit people. I know the tofu companies that are out there and I'm friends with them and I'm in conversations with them. We're pushing each other to maintain quality because that's how it's going to grow the entire sort of space. You know, quality, accessibility and more education for everybody. I hate to say it, but I don't really think of them as competitors. I don't feel like we have yet to meet someone that's going to take away our business. In fact, specific to tofu, I would love someone to make what we make and make it better even because they would even bring more customers into eating what we're making. What's your favorite thing about being Hodo's CEO? And if you're going to use one word to describe yourself, what would it be? My favorite thing about being a Hodo CEO today is that it remains very exciting to operate and run a company from a human resource standpoint, but also in the product development standpoint and the plant-based standpoint. I see so many interesting directions and I want to try them all. So the excitement is still there for me to guide the organization. So I'm very excited about that. And what was the second question? It's if there's one word to describe Mm. you, what would it be? (laughs) Oh, gosh, maybe uh, reinvention. Love it. Well, cannot wait to see what comes of your next reinvention. I've been speaking with Min Tsai, CEO and founder of Hodo Foods. Really enjoyed the conversation with you, Min. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. If you like what you're hearing, you'll find all the Good Company podcast recordings on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you're curious about working with me, send me an email, barbara at shannon-solutions.com. This episode and all the Good Company podcasts are produced with the help from the amazing team at Resonate Recordings. Till next time, stay strong and carry on. I'm Barbara Shannon, and you've been listening to the Good Company Podcast. Podcast.